Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am joined by Peter Young, the Managing Director of the Free Cities Foundation. Mr. Young, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Keith, for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be on the show. What is the Free Cities Foundation? The Free Cities Foundation is an organization that wants to create more competition in what we call the market for living together. For various reasons, the world at the moment has little variation in the style of governance that there is. Most governments, although they have different levels of government spending and different social policies, will generally raise money in the same way. They have a central government that taxes people and runs certain areas of the economy. They have local governments which raise their own revenues locally. And the combination of public spending derives from taxes. But there's no uh, place in the world right now where you can go and you can have a totally service-based kind of society whereby people can, just like they can in industries like clothing, electronics, food, choose the kinds of services they want. And we think that there needs to be new innovations in governance. And so the focus of the Free Cities Foundation is to find models, different models for governance that exist, whether they be uh, the free private cities model, which is uh, conceived by our founder, Titus Gable, or seasteads or intentional communities with the liberty focus or special economic zones. We just think there needs to be more choice and variety and that that would spur innovation and that innovation would encourage better systems of government to develop around the world. So that is the focus of our mission, to create more competition and more innovation in the area of governance. Do you see competition as the opposite of cooperation, or do you think those two ideas can actually be complementary? These ideas are absolutely complementary, and actually uh, we think that cooperation is essential in a libertarian society. One of the common misconceptions about libertarians is that they believe that society is run best when everyone keeps themselves to themselves, when it's just about me and my family and I don't help anyone else. And in fact, in a libertarian society, that's the worst strategy you can pursue. Because in a libertarian society, if you keep yourself to yourself and you don't involve yourself in the community and you don't contribute and you don't get to know people and you don't be supportive of others, and provide services that other people value, then you're going to have a much poorer quality of life because people, even if you're in a situation where you're you know, disabled or, or whatever, um, you know, not having those connections means that people won't uh, support you. And the great thing, you know, the great insight that I've gained from studying the Austrian School of Economics is the insight that when exchange happens, it happens because both parties believe that this is going to be a beneficial outcome and they bear the consequences if it's not a beneficial outcome. So when people trade, one of the common misconceptions in a kind of some macroeconomic standard theories is that market prices are equal to the value of goods. But actually, Austrian economics teaches us that trades only happen because there is a difference in subjective valuation of goods. When something is uh, valued higher by one person and lower by another person, 
a trade will take place and both people have decided that they value the other thing more than the other. So I'm explaining that because this, the implication of that is that when you have more free cooperation and exchange, more division of labor, a larger pool of people who can work together and people I should emphasize are the most valuable resource we have on the planet. You can create more of anything, any natural resource you want. There's a great book on this by Julian Simon called The Natural Resource, and uh, so the ultimate resource is, it's called. And human time is the most valuable thing we have. So if you're a libertarian, the best strategy and the best way to live, aside from the fact that it's good to be social and build human connections in itself, is that we, we need to cooperate and work together. And that's very much the ethos that we promote at our foundation. Um, we don't want to have, you know, walled off enclaves that are just limited to certain groups in society because, A, it's not the kind of society I want to live in, but simply it's not a good business model. If you're a shop and you say, sorry, only these kinds of person can enter, generally you're going to be limited to like very, like certain clientele, Whereas most shops say it's open to everyone. You can come in, you can buy things. And it's the same with free cities. As long as you don't, you know, shoplift in a shop, you shoplift in a shop, you can come and come to a shop. As long as you respect the rights of others and, uh, you know, don't, don't violate property rights or violate some basic rules, then you're welcome to become part of this community. When people look at the uh, free cities model, a very common objection is things that I currently get from the state now that are free, education, policing, fire department, I now would have to pay for. Why would, uh, how would you talk to someone who says, I don't want to switch from this model where I get things for free versus one where there might be instability and I might have to pay. And if I lose my job, I might lose things and never have access to them. So yes, it's a, it's a common question and it's, it's, it's good that people ask this question because it's an important issue. How do we provide education and healthcare and the things that we normally have government support for in a free city? And the answer is that we provide them uh, on the private market, but we take away the barriers that, that, to innovation that make these products expensive and, and, and we give people more choice in the ability to, uh, to, to send their children to, to different kinds of school because not all children fit into the same box. So if you're putting 30 children into a school, which in the UK is generally based on the postcode that you live in, you'll have one or two choices, maybe three, and you just get put into that system. You're stuck in that system for however long, the teachers, you know, have certain rules, but they might not be the rules that you that you think are optimal. And the way it works now is that the government has a top down way of deciding what the national curriculum is. This is in this is in the UK. I believe it's slightly different in, in the US, but there's a national curriculum. Everyone has to study it and someone decides what they should study and what they shouldn't. But in our society, people would have the ability to. Uh, to, to set up different kinds of school. You might have a school that focuses on kids that are super artistic. You might have a school that focuses on kids that love to code and want to train them in coding. But the essential thing is that people, because they get something free at the point of, uh, of service, 
such as the NHS in the UK, they believe that they're not paying costs for it. But of course, they're paying for it in tax. And even though the percentage of people who pay taxes is very skewed towards the wealthy, uh, I can't quite remember the exact figures, but it's something like, you know, only about 40% of the UK population are net uh, tax receivers rather than tax uh, beneficiaries in terms of what's spent on them versus what they actually get taxed. But even that, you have to understand the bigger picture, because if a company offering services is getting taxed more, it means that their input costs are higher, which prevents them from lowering prices. So those costs all feed into the economy. They all bring costs higher. And they mean the services that are normally really expensive, like, for example, U.S. medical services are incredibly expensive. And people say to us, you know, you want to privatize healthcare? Look at the U.S. Look at how expensive it is compared to the U.K. Look at how much government money they get. And it's still twice as expensive as the U.K. And I just say, I agree, but it has nothing to do with the free market. There are all kinds of licensing and, uh, and, and kind of qualification requirements that have to go through universities, which are then government you know, funded as well, which costs huge amounts of money. So huge amounts of cost to train the personnel. There's also intellectual property law, which this is not a foundation position, but this is a personal position. I think that intellectual property is something that, that, that we can't make a, a good moral case for. I think property rights should only exist in the realm of actually um, uh, uh, what's sort of rivalrous, rivalrous goods, where if one person owns it, another person own it, owns it. But intellectual property laws mean that, for example, uh, you know, medicines can be patented, and then it can cost up to a billion dollars to get something approved by uh, the FDA in the US. So what this does is it raises all the prices of, of medical care. It also skews medical services towards large companies. And there are other ways in which large companies benefit fit through uh, state intervention. Um, probably the largest one being the fact that we have uh, inflation in the economy. So people are forced to invest in stocks and publicly traded stocks have to be companies over a certain size and they have to pay a lot of money in order to become publicly listed. And so the whole population ends up investing their savings in these companies in order to, in order to just sustain their purchasing power over time. And this means that we have a strange economy, which everyone defines as you know, free market run amok. But when you actually look under the hood of how the economy works, and you see that there's so much regulation and so much intervention and that's preventing competitors from providing cheaper services and better services, then you start to see that this has nothing to do with the free market at all. It's a mixed economy. It's some kind of free elements, but it's, it's very state controlled, even in the US. And I often joke, like what well, I say to people, you know, in socialist countries like the, the US, where well, they have this system and it doesn't work particularly well, you know, because I do think the US model is actually incredibly uh, uh, socialist and state controlled. Um, and the comparison would just be where the US was, say, 100 years ago or where Britain was 100 years ago, uh, because we had very different models and uh, the, the economy, the, like, the advances that were made in terms of the 
level of human impact were 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 much greater. So what I would say is uh, just to come back to your question, uh, these services would be provided on the market, but in a system where only the, the companies don't pay taxes, they just pay a fixed low service fee to have security and basic services, they can lower their costs and they can provide these services cheaper and there can be more variety of services so people can choose exactly what works for them and their children in terms of healthcare and education. And if people want to opt out of funding these services, are they legally able to? So the way that um, we think it would work in, in one of our models, the free private cities model, is that there is a operating company that, that owns the area of land and sets the rules. And so this word private, sometimes people, you know, when they hear private, they imagine, uh, oh, this is some kind of gated community that's very secretive and people can, you know, wealthy people retreat to. But it literally just refers to the fact that it's run by a company and the company would have a profit motive just in the same way that Apple, Amazon, Facebook, all of these companies that we use all the time have a profit motive. And the reason for that is that you want people to invest in things because if they invest in things in a free economy, the only way those companies can make money is by providing something that customers are willing to buy voluntarily. There's no regulation that says you have to buy this particular thing to get to do this job or you must purchase this particular permit to park your car or whatever it is. Like in that, in that system, there is uh, much more choice uh, for people and um, people would be, uh, you know, so, so, so the idea of it being private just refers to the fact that there's an operating company. So what could you opt out of was the question. So yes, and it, there, it, it, can I just yeah. specify? So in uh, America, the idea is, well, we pay for the police through taxes and we pay for the courts through taxes. And then they give us uh, it's amazing that they still call it free, even though they admit they're paying it in taxes. Uh, and then we get these things for free. And uh, that's what makes the social contract legitimate, which immediately raises the question. So if they don't protect us and they don't issue justice, then we no longer have an obligation to pay taxes. Right. Like if BLM burns down a city or something, we don't have to pay taxes anymore. And that's just OK. And they go, no, you have to pay. Well, what if the military doesn't keep us safe? Well, you're actually going to end up funding the military more. So my whole thing is, is there an actual contract where if I say, yep, I'll pay the security fee. By the way, I've been robbed and assaulted 20 times at this place. I'm done paying your fee and I'm not leaving my house because you told me if I paid the fee, I'd get the service. I haven't gotten the service, so I'm keeping the money. Is there an actual contract or is it the fake social contract that statists uh, tell us is real? I'm really glad you've asked that question because we have uh, an article written by our founders, Titus which is entitled, Why a Citizen's Contract is Better Than a Constitution. And we focus, this is a core part of the model that we advocate most strongly, which is that there is a specific contract that exists between every citizen and the operating company. So 
Just to follow up briefly on what you've said there about having problems with healthcare and having problems with policing, like what if I'm not protected? Am I entitled not to pay tax? In the current system, no, you're not. You, you're, you're, you take what you're given, and if the policing isn't working, the solution is normally pay the police more. So the incentives are all the wrong way around. It means that I also know that in particular in the US, there is a lot of divergence of view about how the police should handle certain incidents. In our system, that is, a, that, is, that is solved through a market mechanism because the policing and security is provided by an operating company that can set a specific kind of policy. Like our, if, if um, we see something suspicious happening, we have the ability to stop and search in this city. But this is specified in a contract at the beginning. So if people don't like that idea, they might choose a different free city. But basically the rights of, of, of the citizen are made clear in a, in a physical contract. And that in contract includes all the services the citizen wants from the operating company, and they don't have to be the same. So for example, I think what the minimum would need to be is some kind of basic security to protect the overall land area, which would cost some money. And um, in one of the projects we work with in Honduras, which has some similarities to this, this kind of free cities concept, uh, they, have a, they have a company there that, that manages the security and does it very well and efficiently and very cheaply. And uh, so these aren't huge costs, uh, but things like that, basically within the contract, you would have certain things that could be specified. Like if you are mugged on the streets and the, the uh, culprit can't be found to compensate you, you're entitled to compensation from the operator. You know, the, the operator would could decide on having policies like this, which may be attractive to some people, but may be attractive to others. But the whole point of this is that we often assume that there is an ideal system for running society, a society, a world where there are seven billion people. And in fact, we live in a world of different different kinds of people, different kinds of tastes, different levels of income. And there'll be some models that are right for some people and some models that are right for others. And these models can still cooperate. You could have free cities that like, you know, target retirees and you could have free cities that target digital nomads and remote workers and young people. And it doesn't mean that because you're a resident of one, you never talk to the other. You know, there's every incentive for systems to be set up so that these free cities can cooperate. You might live in one free city at one point in your life and decide at another point in your life you want to move to another. But they're all based on the ideas that, you know, we should have more choice in the kind of structures under which we live. And, uh, you know, it's really an irresolvable problem, the policing problem you mentioned in, in the US, because people, people, you, you know, people cannot opt out of, of, of paying for the for the police. And so someone in government that doesn't, you know, have access to the minds and preferences of different people has to sort of make a guess at what the right level of funding is, make a guess at what the right policies are. But in free cities, people can choose, see the policies in black and white, and they can, uh, and they can choose whether they sign up to them or not. And people that want to have you know, police that never do stop and search and police that don't carry guns, that could be that could be their choice. P 
people that want the police to have guns or want the whole population to be able to carry guns, that would be their choice as well. So you could decide on the policy and then basically people people can choose where they want to live. And uh, we, we kind of solve the solution. And even if you don't like living under a system, there's every incentive for small communities to allow free travel, set up simple treaties saying if you're a member of this free city, you can come to this free city, you can trade with this free city. And I think the world would just be much more harmonious because we'd be all, all be under the system we want to be in, but we could still all cooperate and trade peacefully. One of my favorite articles on the topic of libertarianism is from a guy named Roderick T. Long. And he says, you know, technically a credit card company could make a credit card that is a cube and it's their, uh, it, it's their card. If, uh, if only uh, it works in one machine on the planet, you can do that. But no one would do that. So they all cooperate to make them the same size so you can cooperate with more people. You technically can have a cell phone service that only calls people on the same cell phone service, but no one has a, the incentive to do that. Therefore, they're going to constantly cooperate. What if there's a USB that only works on one type of computer and there's only one of those computers? Well, they have an incentive to make USBs work on every computer. So we actually see this everywhere. Um, just one more note on the U.S. Uh, healthcare costs. Paul Krugman, in his book, The Conscience of a Liberal, said in 2004, government programs paid for 44 percent of healthcare in America, while private insurance only paid for 36 so that's in 2004, before Bush Jr. expanded Medicare Part D, before Barack Obama's implementation of the of the Affordable Care Act. So it is a lie that uh, the U.S. has a free market healthcare system. Uh, imagine uh, saying that gay marriage is legal, but uh, 80 percent of the marriages are denied, and they have to get permission from the Catholic Church to get married. Uh, well, okay, that's so heavily regulated; it's not actually. A free exchange. So uh, that's just a very uh, important thing that uh, people need to understand before, you know, accepting the free cities concept. Are unions and worker cooperatives in alignment with the Free Cities Foundation? So they they would be free to set up a union, and the uh, operator of a city would be free to set a policy on unions. For example, they could say within our free city unions have the right to strike against their employees. That's fine if that's the policy they want to, to set. If they want to set up a workers' cooperative so that there's a more socialised form of, uh, of work where there's less kind of uh, monetary trade and it's more about uh, actual labour for labour like the Israeli kibbutzim, they'll be free to do that. Uh, we just don't think that would be a particularly attractive long-term model. Um, the Israeli kibbutzim um, are attractive for some people, but, you know, it's not a model that has been adopted uh, widely for, for, ver for reasons that I think, uh, you know, people, if you have the ability to, to strike and uh, you're legally protected from not being fired, that just makes things much more expensive and it puts the population at ransom uh, to the major services in, in the city. And within the UK, for example, we've had uh, like very big changes to, to union power. The unions used to have a lot of power in the UK in the 1970s, 
uh, Margaret Thatcher, who was quite a controversial prime minister, did uh, rein back some of the union power that there is. But unions still have a reasonable amount of influence and power and uh, funding. They're large. They're the large funders of the, the Labour Party in, in the UK, and they influence the Labour Party uh, quite considerably. But we've seen in the last week that there has been the largest uh, national rail strike uh, in 30 years. Um, the, the whole, you know, network in the UK was shut down for for like three days and on limited services for the others. So uh, there's been doctors strikes. And basically, uh, these are all in public sectors, sector uh, delivered services, because within the public sector, there are certain rights that you have uh, to to strike and to retain your job and not be penalized for striking. You also have very you also have everyone working under the same umbrella with no uh, competition because whilst there is a private healthcare sector in in the UK, you have to pay for the public one anyway. So you're either getting a service that you've paid for already and is free, or you're getting a private provider that you have to pay for as well. So really, like when you when you like artificially. Uh, conglomerize large sectors of the economy. And because rail in the UK developed, you know, the UK was a pioneer in rail. It developed most of its uh, network completely privately. Um, and most of the network, um, if you look at the history of when the lines were built, I mean, the last ones were built, I think, no later than about 1910. The whole network was built during the period uh, of the gold standard, a couple, other than a couple of recent high speed lines. And, uh, you know, this this mainly was driven by private companies. It was only later that uh, they started to kind of nationalize and coordinate on the trains. And uh, the same is true for education, just as an aside, um, people and, and healthcare. In fact, Britain is a great case study because we were kind of, you know, we've got a long history of industrialization. We were one of the first countries to industrialize. We kind of led the industrial revolution. And uh, during during that time, um, you know, the there were there were loads of hospitals that were built. In fact, there's almost a kind of religious conviction and belief in the NHS in the UK because the idea of healthcare free at the point of delivery it's something that you know sounds really nice because everyone likes free things. But of course, like it's 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 more it's more nuanced to make an argument to say, hey, well, actually. If you do that, this is the consequence. But if you look at the hospitals, there are about 57, 58 hospitals in London, and all of them were built before the NHS was, was, was in existence. If you look back at the history of how healthcare worked, sure, like it was much less advanced, but things like, um, uh, you know, uh, like various, various, various medical breakthroughs, such as the discovery of penicillin, such as the first uh, polio vaccine, all of these things were happening, anaesthetic development, all of these things happened uh, when we had an entirely privately run healthcare sector. And what you also found was that uh, many, there was large uh, charitable donations, doctors would often have, uh, in some parts of the country, half of their day would be dedicated to private patients, and then some of their day would be dedicated to low income peoples that just didn't have the money to help and actually, the fees weren't very, very high. 
I saw something that showed that it was like, you know, to get a consultation, the average fee was something like um, two, sh two shillings or something in around 1910, which was probably like, you know, about a tenth of a week's wages, something like this. So it wasn't it wasn't like unreasonably high to get a consultation, but there was lots of support, actually, like um, even though we were living in an earlier time, resources were, were less were, were more limited than they are today. I'm not saying that that was a better society in any stretch because we just hadn't developed. Capital accumulation takes time. But back then, if you look at the surveys that were done, there's a, there's a survey that was done in 1898, and it analyzes how much was being given uh, by the average person to help the poor, uh, including in, in stuff like healthcare and education. And uh, the figure was 10% was of salaries, even though people were much poorer then, they gave 10% of their salaries on average to, to charity. And the figure has since fallen to 2% now that we have the welfare uh, state. And the other thing briefly to mention, sorry to get a bit carried away, but I just think it's an interesting story to tell and a very unknown story, is that people often ask the question, how would education be provided surely there would be loads of kids that didn't go to school if there wasn't the state providing it and it wasn't free and actually uh, and they say look at places like britain where you know healthcare is uh, sorry education is free healthcare is free but if you look at these studies that were done there was a big study in the uh, 18 in 1860 called the newcastle commission um, which investigated whether or not schooling should be made compulsory because at this point uh, schooling wasn't compulsory and they did a big survey of the whole country and they found that the that 95 percent of the children uh, in England were going to some form of schooling up to the age of 12 and sure that's not up to the age that we have today but uh, it, um, it shows that actually most of the growth that happened in uh, uh, like education and schooling happened without any government involvement same is true of science, same is true of healthcare. Um, these things are totally possible. And we should try and learn from the way in which Britain experienced such dramatic development, take away some of the bad bits and focus on the bits that were beneficial and try and learn from them. So just like in America, the things that the state subsidizes the most, uh, education, healthcare, housing, and the military are the things we see the highest prices in. So instead of producers, uh, being accountable to consumers, they're actually accountable to the state who has very little incentive to go through things with a fine tooth comb, making sure there's low costs and high quality. They don't face competition. So it's terrible. And also, if you opt out of funding something in the private market, it might not be a great option, but at least you don't go to jail. If you don't fund the state, they'll actually put you in jail. They just did it with a guy from the Jersey Shore. Mike, the situation, one of my childhood heroes. This uh, this was a great uh, tragedy against freedom. When it comes to things like Bitcoin, how can Bitcoin help us achieve these free cities? So Bitcoin is of great interest to, to me personally. I think that one of the central reasons why government systems tend to be so aligned is that if you decide that you want to adopt something that's unconventional and goes kind of contrary to what the accepted international norms are, then you can get shut out of systems of international trade. Because 
international trade is not something that is, is simple to do. It's been a problem that humanity has been trying to solve for millennia. The question of how we can exchange with each other across long distances and how we can cooperate and how we can store our value. And the current system we have is uh, evolved from the gold standard when you know, gold was initially used, uh, you know, in coins and uh, traded directly, mainly uh, by by the wealthier people, richer, as poorer people used use silver more. But gold kind of countries kind of converged on gold because gold proved to be the commodity that existed that had the lowest, what Safety and the Moose calls the the lowest uh, reliable stock to flow ratio, which means uh, that. Uh, the, the amount that you can physically produce relative to the existing stock each year is, um, is, the, is the lowest. So that's a naturally occurring thing. Gold is very scarce in the Earth's crust, and it becomes more and more expensive to mine because the more gold you dig up, uh, the further you have to dig, the more expensive equipment you need. And so gold has reliably had a kind of growth rate of about one to 2% every year, no higher than 2% in, in any particular uh, year. That's been the maximum. And of course, that has meant that gold historically has been able to serve as a commodity through which uh, countries can trade. Because if you have everyone trading in paper clips, uh, then someone sets up a paperclip factory and they can just buy goods from everyone in the, in the economy. That doesn't work. If you have people that could just easily create the currency, that doesn't work. And, you, and you've seen that play out in historically in places like, well, well, in, in the US where they were using cowrie shells as currency. And then the colonials came over and started mm -hmm. using silver money and, and buying their stuff with, with shells. And, and basically, like they realized, oh, we're giving all our stuff away and they're making more shells. So there's more inflation here. The same thing happened. Glass beads were used in West Africa as currency. And when uh, foreigners moved there, they realized that they could manufacture glass beads in Europe. So they came in and they were able to buy things locally with new glass beads. And it took a while before people realized, actually, these glass beads are becoming more prevalent and we should be charging more for things in glass beads. But we converged on gold because it's because it's so hard to find and it's had this kind of reliable growth rate in supply over time, which has been which has been low. And so the country, the whole world converged on a gold standard. Most of the names of currencies uh, refer to, uh, you know, uh, quantities of gold in their own language or have a derivation related to a weight in, in their own language. You know, the British pound being a good, good example. Um, so, you know, so gold was used and, and as a way of trading historically. But the problem with gold is that it's a physical commodity. And it allows uh, it, it, it's hard to transport large quantities of it. And it's hard to, you know, it's expensive to, to, to transport large quantities of it uh, because, you know, you have a security risk for one, but you actually have to physically take it and pay for the transport. So gold has great. Um, again, this is a kind of insight from Safety Namoose. Gold has great um, saleability across time meaning that if you buy it at one time, you can sell it easily at another time. It's got a long history where you can you know, reliably know that the purchasing power is going to be roughly the same or, or, or even higher if you hold it into the future.
but it doesn't have very good saleability across space because it has high transaction costs. And so the result of that is that intermediaries started to keep track of gold payments and people would deposit their, their gold in banks. Uh, and these, these banks would then keep track of who owes what to who. They would be trusted to manage them. And then uh, the, the, the transactions, you know, you didn't have to pay that transaction cost, but you didn't have to pay as much to actually make a transfer. So some people preferred, preferred that, and it's probably a better solution than just trading physical gold. But the problem with that is that the gold all ends up centralized in particular places. And when the gold is centralized in particular places, and those are known to be places that hold gold, those places are subject to government capture. And we've seen that uh, various mandates, you know, famously in, in the United States when gold was banned, um, we've seen that, you know, gold ended up getting transferred to the Bank of England. And then it only takes, if it's all in one place and the whole country believes that they're, you know, suddenly everything's exchangeable for gold if they want to, which limits the amount of gold that you can, you can actually, the amount of tickets you can produce to claim gold, then actually the government has the power to, to just say, sorry, we're not honoring that obligation anymore. And that's exactly what happened. And we then moved into a period where we gradually, as a, as a world, you know, we moved through uh, the gold exchange standard, we moved through the Bretton Woods system where the US dollar was backing everything and the US dollar was technically redeemable in gold by other central banks. But that system had its value because it solved one problem of gold because it allowed for international exchange to happen. But what it did is it put extraordinary new power in the hands of government because the government could then choose to print. But like when Nixon went off the gold standard in 1971, the government could choose to print however much money it wanted. And because of that transition period after Bretton Woods, when all the countries in Europe uh, were, were struggling for funds. They'd have to pay the US a lot for armaments. That's why there's so much gold in Fort Knox, because it all came over from, from Europe during uh, the Second World War. And it stayed there. The US had the backing. And so it made sense for the US dollar to become this, this global currency that everyone used. And basically, the whole financial infrastructure that we exist today was set up between the end of the Bretton Woods, you know, shortly after Bretton Woods that took place in 1944 and 1971. And by the time it was set up, you know, there's things happened. Charles de Gaulle, the French uh, president, uh, famously said, you know, we need to reclaim our gold. And he sent a, a battleship across to the US to collect the, France's gold. And this is partly why Nixon panicked and took the US off, off the gold standard. Um, sorry to give quite a long answer, but I think the history of this is kind of, kind of relevant to, to why I think Bitcoin is uh, you know, a potential solution. Because what happened through, you know, once you've established all of these payment rails based on the US dollar, they're there. You've got existing infrastructure. It's like having like building a load of petrol stations that only take a certain amount of petrol if you want to change to hydrogen you've got to rebuild every single petrol station that already exists mm -hmm. so the us became the de facto controller of the world's economy 
And because every bank, every central bank has an account in the Federal Reserve, the US can decide who can operate on the system, what the rules of the system are, and can print money that gets inflated, uh, which gets passed and which creates inflation, which gives them extra spending power. But that inflation is passed on to the rest of the world because more US dollars circulate outside the US than in the US economy uh, alone. That's at least true for like paper US dollars. And the whole system operates on US dollars. So what we now have is a, a centralized system whereby if you don't respect certain US policies, which you, you may disagree with or you may agree with, you get shut out of uh, international systems. You can't join the WTO if you don't respect US and other country intellectual property rights, for example. You can't join uh, the WTO if you don't have, you know, respect certain ways of, of, of doing business and you don't, uh, you know, uh, th there are various different policies that you cannot adopt if you want to be members of, of, of uh, international trade organizations. And if you want to use the US dollar, you know, as we've just seen with Russia, regardless of what you think about the ethics of the, of the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, putting that aside, we have seen that Russia, that, that the US has the power simply to, to, to flick a switch and that country's balance is, is gone. And they do the same for Iran. Um, you know, regardless of what you think, they have the capability to completely isolate Iran from the international financial system. And, you know, Iran's government obviously has um, lots of controversial policies, um, but, you know, it's a popular, it's a huge population of people. And, you know, you might not think it's right to be able to shut the entire population out of, uh, of that system. So the reason I'm giving this background is because there is a genuine problem that has been solved by having an international digitized payment system that's run by the Federal Reserve because it has allowed global trade to increase. And I think that's partly why we've seen such a growth in development uh, in, in the third world since the 1990s, because we've seen a huge uptick in global trade. And this is particularly true in China, uh, where I spent 10 years living and working. It's particularly true in India, it's Southeast Asia in general. There's been a huge improvement in quality of life. And I think that's attributed to the fact that we can trade freely using digital technology. But the disadvantage is obviously that that technology is controlled by one particular party, and if that particular party decides they don't like you or that you're adopting a policy that they don't like, you're shut out of this global economy. But the, to come on to why I think Bitcoin is important. Shortly after the internet started to become widely used, there was a book uh, by James Dale Davison and William Rees-Mogg in which they wrote about the inevitability of the internet by providing like free speed of light access to information to be able to come up with some form of money. But in order to do that, they'd have to solve a few technical problems. And they wrote, this was in about 1997 or 96, um, they wrote about various ways this could work. And they knew about um, public private key technology and it's quite remarkable to read uh, what they wrote about how digital money could work and how it could uh, replace 
uh, central government run money. And I think when we change to a world where the internet allows us to exchange information, the development of something like Bitcoin was only really a matter of time because all that Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he, she, or they were, uh, did was, was uniquely combine a few specific uh, kinds of uh, computing technology that allowed them for the first time to create a, a scarce digital asset. Something that, like, if you and I exchange a JPEG, you can send that JPEG to as many people as you want. That's one of the advantages of data. It's just information in a system. But basically, the long and short of it is that uh, Satoshi Nakamoto was able to design a system whereby a ledger of transactions could be protected through a mechanism called proof of work. And this would mean that we would have a way of transacting over time using the, the, the most advanced cryptographic technology, SHA-256, that's ever been invented. And this, has, this new technology solves the problem that we've been facing for the last kind of 100 years, which is how do we have something that doesn't need to be like controlled by a centralized party and centralized that also is in is has a has a monetary policy that people can't change how can we have something that's both has fiat monies or you know normal government monies saleability across space and gold saleability across time and basically because computing systems can be designed on a purely mathematical basis, you can kind of look for like the perfect properties you want in a money, and you can design that system within cyberspace. And that's basically what Satoshi Nakamoto did. And we've seen since then remarkable growth in the adoption of this technology. I think we're, so, we're still very early. But to bring this back to, to free cities, what this means is that there is now for the first time an alternative mechanism through which countries that don't necessarily agree with US or other government uh, mandated policies have an alternative way to trade within their local economy. You can kind of do that anyway with the national currency, but crucially to trade between each other. So unions that, you know, the countries can have an incentive to cooperate and say, you know, we accept and we use Bitcoin and we accept our payments for services in Bitcoin, this is now made possible. And I think this is this is really important because one of the free the challenges that free cities face is that you know getting their bank accounts set up is is really difficult because uh, you know if you're operating in a jurisdiction that is regarded as kind of non-conventional or you know viewed as a tax haven, for example, um, which, you know, it's a, it's a word that people use, but really it just means that they, you know, have lower, lower taxes and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, Hong Kong developed with uh, 10% of the, uh, sorry, about, yeah, about a third of the tax level per capita that Britain did after the Second World War. And it managed to overtake the, U the UK's GDP in just in just six decades. So calling it a tax haven, you know, it's a different development model. But uh, the point is that now we have Bitcoin, there's an alternative mechanism 
that actually works that can be used for international trade. And I think this will be a great catalyst to uh, allowing free cities to have genuine independence and offer more hope and opportunity to people, particularly those based in the developing world. Peter, if people want to find more about the Free Cities Foundation, where can they go? So our website is www.free-cities.org. If you go there, you can find uh, information about uh, our organization, some resources, some uh, things to read. And if you scroll to the bottom of that page, there's a link to subscribe to our newsletter. But something to flag is that we're currently doing a website um, uh, re, uh, redesign. So there'll be a nice new website up there uh, that's got our updated uh, materials in about a month. So uh, that's one place you can find us. Um, we're going to be announcing a, a new Twitter handle this week. Um, we're just trying, we're just finalizing what that will be. So that in the meantime, the best way of finding us on Twitter is to follow me at my handle, Peter M.I. Young. And I will be posting out the links to all of our new social media uh, that you can find. But actually, the best way to find out about us and the best way to find out about free cities is actually to come uh, to an event that we're running in Prague. Now, I know that many of your audience are in the US and it's a long way to come. But Prague is really a, a wonderful historic city. And the event we're planning is going to have people from all around the world coming together that are believers in, in freedom to talk about the different kinds of structures that are developing in areas like education, finance, um, and, uh, and governance, you know, like air, ideas like free cities. Um, we've got speakers lined up like um, uh, Prince Philip of Serbia, Majat Wade, uh, some big names in the Bitcoin industry involved, uh, Stefan Levera. We've got a virtual panel with Jeff Booth, Greg Foss and Larry Lepard, who are going to talk to us about uh, nation state Bitcoin adoption. So it's it's a really exciting thing that, that we that we've got going. And it's it's also an event that we really want to reflect uh, what the communities we're trying to build in, in free cities, because free cities are for everyone. So we invite people to bring bring their you know, bring their partners, bring their bring their children along. We're going to be hosting some special activities for children uh, alongside the program. So if you're thinking about uh, which conference to go to regarding uh, finding out more about freedom, all of the projects that are currently ongoing, whether they're free cities or intentional communities or special economic zones, they'll all be uh, kind of represented here and you can see the lay of the land. So maybe if you're someone that's thinking about moving to a new jurisdiction or wants to support or be involved, or you've got practical skills where you actually want to come and help build one as a pioneer, then this is the place to find out about it. And if you can't make it in person, there are options to attend online. But the way to find out more is to go to our website, www.lifetimeliberty.com. You'll be able to learn about the theme, what's happening on each day, and see all the list of the confirmed speakers. And that list is only going to grow. Thanks to everyone for watching Keith and I Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Peter, thanks so much for your time. Really good to chat to you, Keith. Thank you very much for inviting me. Ready. A free trade agreement would take you two, pa I mean, one, two paragraphs to write. The tariffs are gone and the quotas are gone. They take a, a, a radical free trade position, which I think has been left out of the argument. You'll see the radical free traders, are they... I mean, I know Murray Rothbard's friend of mine, Lou mm -hmm. Rockwell, radical free traders would take away all barriers. 
militantly opposed to this treaty. By the way,